right, we're continuing on through our study through the book of Genesis. We're doing part two of Genesis 12 through 25, which is really just looking at the two chapters of 18 and 19, which is the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative, and of course the announcement of Isaac uh, to Abraham a little bit as well. So let's go ahead and bow now in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We are in awe of the things that you can do. And we should trust then that you are, in fact, God, as this book is trying to tell us, that you're God and we're not. Help us to understand this lesson and apply it in our daily lives. And even though we've heard it before, I pray that we understand that there's a reason why evil is in the world, and it is not merely because of man's free will or something of that nature, Lord, that it is because you have decided that it be an instrument in your hand as you use it uh, to your will. And in that, we must understand that you are good and you are just and you are still almighty and, and not play with those doctrines simply because we're trying to somehow justify their evil being the world with a good, good almighty God in the world. We thank you so much for these things, Lord, and we pray that you would be glorified above all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 18 first, uh, 18, 1 through 13. The Lord appears to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the hottest time of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing across from him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by and leave your servant. Let a little water be brought so that you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. And let me get a bit of food so that you may refresh yourselves since you have passed by your servant's home. After that, you may be on your way. All right, they replied. You may do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick! Take three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread. Then Abraham ran to the herd and chose a fine, tender calf and gave it to the servant, who quickly prepared it. Abraham then took some curds of milk along with the calf that had been prepared and placed the food before them. They ate while he was standing near them under a tree. Then they asked him, Where is Sarah, your wife? He replied, There in the tent. One of them said, I will surely return to you when the season comes round again, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, not far behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and advancing in years. Sarah had long since passed menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, After I am worn out, will I have pleasure, especially when my husband is too old? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child when I am old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? I will return to you when the season comes round again, and Sarah will have a son. Then Sarah lied, saying, I did not laugh, because she was afraid. But the Lord said, No, you did laugh. All right. So here we have uh, Abraham. He's uh, sitting by the uh, oaks of Mamre, and these three persons, the three Malachim, come to him. Now, at first, Malachim just can mean messengers. 
So we're not sure, are these humans? Are these angels? It seems clear throughout 18 and 19 that they manifest themselves to be actual angels for numerous reasons. Supernatural angels. Um, one of them, of course, is that the two, when they leave, they end up in Sodom that evening. And Sodom is like 20 miles away. There's no way that humans walked 20 miles uh, by evening because they're with Abraham most of the day. Uh, they're sitting down, they're eating with him, they're, they're with him most of the day. They probably did not walk there. Of course, they're bringing destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, uh, they're able to strike the men in the city and whatnot. But the biggest thing is that when humans address angels, they sometimes talk to angels, but they're almost always talking to the Lord through angels. And if you notice here the way that Abraham addresses the angels, it's my Lord. Um, and he speaks to them clearly as though they're Yahweh. Um, and that's not because the angels are, are theophanies of Yahweh. It just it, it functions sort of like an intercom to where people will speak to the Lord through the angels. So when they bow down to their faces, they're not bowing down to the angel. They're bowing down to the Lord uh, to whom they're speaking through the angel. And so that, that might help the switch in voices because you have a switch in, uh, in persons, I'm sorry, in, in person because you have a plural sometimes addressed, but then you have the singular sometimes addressed. And I know people are trying to get the Trinity out of it and whatnot. And it may be that that's why God sent three angels to represent the three persons of the Trinity. But ultimately, uh, they're not theophanies. It's, it's angels. There's nothing to say here that God himself is actually sitting there with Abraham eating food or whatever. It's just that they're angels themselves. Now, notice that angels then in Genesis can take upon a physical life. They're able to eat food. Um, and just like before, if we looked at chapter 6, uh, what is prob the most probable interpretation of that uh, is that those are angels actually having sex with human women. And so obviously they're able to take upon a human-type form uh, in and out of the world and whatnot. And so, um, and so they're identified as three men uh, that come along, but then we see that they're actually more than men. Well, of course, Abraham is presented as being hospitable. So hospitality, we've talked about before, is not merely like I have friends over and I entertain, and that's not really what hospitality is in the Bible. Hospitality is literally, in, in the, uh, the Greek New Testament, it's love of strangers, and that's describing what Abraham is doing here. The, he doesn't know them. They're just strangers that are coming along, but they've come into his domain under which he has a governance, and so he needs to take care of them. And so a righteous man would take care of them. We see this paralleled with what Lot does. Lot does the same thing for the men. Uh, except, of course, uh, he brings them into his house because it's later at night. And so hospitality also then will require uh, you to actually bring them into your house and take care of them and give them a, a, a wash their feet and all that sort of thing. Um, and so it, what's important is, is that Abraham is being presented as a, an extremely righteous man. And so is Lot. Lot gets the short end of the deal in 19. Because a lot of people are like, well, you know, Lot, he moved into Sodom, and that just shows something about his character. And Lot is never portrayed as a wicked man. Uh, Lot is never portrayed as someone who compromises necessarily simply by moving to Sodom. That's something that we're doing, but the text doesn't do that. 
And later New Testament authors don't do that. Peter comments on Lot and says that he was a righteous man and his righteous soul was tormented day and night in Sodom. And so he may have gone to Sodom for all we know to be a judge. It seems clear that he, he's sitting in the gate there when they come. Um, and so to be a judge there. And so he's presented as righteous. Abraham is being presented as righteous. That's important for what's going on, that you know that these are two extremely righteous men in this situation. Now, um, the message they have for Abraham is that God is going to do something impossible. He is going to give Abraham a son through Sarah. And uh, that causes him to laugh, of course. Sarah hears it, and it causes her to laugh. And therefore, the name of the kid is going to end up being Isaac, which, which is uh, the word sahak means to laugh. So uh, Yitzhak means laughter. Um, and so it's to remind people that they laughed. They thought it was absurd that God can do anything. And in fact, in the text, God is going to say to them, he, he says to them, is anything impossible? Is anything too hard for Yahweh to do? Anything. Now, we're not talking about, well, God can make a square circle. God doesn't do a lot. He can't make impossible things. No. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't move? No. There's, because there is, if God's infinite, there's nothing more than infinite. God can't do things that are more than God. That's not the point. The point is, is that God is almighty in terms of anything that can be done. And the word pala here is, is the word for miracle. Is there any miracle God can't do? Is there any wondrous thing Anything that can be done, anything of possibility that humans can't do, that God can't do. Well, no, that God can do anything possible. He can make anything happen. He's the creator. Uh, again, this is presenting God as very different than human beings. There's nothing impossible that God can't do. In 17, when God introduced himself to Abraham, he introduces himself as El Shaddai. El Shaddai is like the God of the mountain, the God most high meaning he is higher than all the other gods on the earth. Um, he, he is the most high God. And so I think my translation translated it, the sovereign Lord. Uh, he is a sovereign God. Uh, he is the God Almighty. So it's important to understand he's been presented here, and he has been presented because he's the creator of the world and everything he's done, as the Almighty God. There's nothing he can't do. So remember, Genesis is dealing with the problem of evil in its theology. So the answer to the problem of evil is not, well, there's some things that God can't do. There's some things that God just can't see. Uh, he can't see the future. Um, he's, he, he's, just, he's not powerful enough to do that. Um, he, he won't interfere with human will. We're going to see in this text that that's absolutely garbage. God does interfere with human will. And so it, it might be even part of uh, Genesis' purpose to maybe even put that in there as well, because it is a question at the time of the author as well. So he may be putting that in there to show that God does actually interfere with human will. So that's not the answer either. Um, so the answer is not to somehow limit God to justify, oh, well, there's evil in the world, and for God to exist, he must be limited in some way. And that, that's why we have this evil. That's not why evil exists. It's not because God's limited. Uh, he is almighty. There's nothing he can't do. That, the text wants us to understand that. And that's why this whole episode is part of the Sodom and Gomorrah episode. It precedes it because it wants us to understand, no, God is almighty. Uh, he's not less than that.
So, of course, then we come to the, the episode where he has this conversation with Abraham. Abraham's now going to question then his goodness, his righteousness. So let's read that. It's uh, chapter six, or sorry, verse 16 uh, to the end of the chapter. When the men got up to leave, they looked over Sodom. Now Abraham was walking with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Should I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? After all, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on the earth may receive blessing through him. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then the Lord will give to Abraham what he promised him. So the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so blatant that I must go down and see if there are as wicked as the outcry suggests. If not, I want to know. The two men turned and headed towards Sodom, but Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham approached and said, Will you really sweep away the godly along with the wicked? What if there are 50 godly people in the city? Will you really wipe it out and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 godly people who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the godly with the wicked, treating the godly and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? So the Lord replied, If I find in the city of Sodom fifty godly people, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham asked, Since I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes, what if there are five less than fifty godly people? Will you destroy the whole city because of five are because five are lacking? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find forty five there. Abraham spoke to him again, What if forty are found there? He replied, I will not do it for the sake of the forty. Then Abraham said, May the Lord not be angry so that I may speak. What if thirty are found there? He replied, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Since I have understand since I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, what if I only what if only twenty are found there? He replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the twenty. Finally Abraham said, May the Lord not be angry so that I may speak just once more. What if ten are found there? He replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. The Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. Then Abraham returned home. Okay, so uh, here we have then, we have Abraham, who is a righteous man, questioning God. God tells him, and God purposely tells him, obviously, wants Abraham to know. Why? Because Abraham is going to intercede. Uh, he is going to intercede for the righteous. Notice that intercession on Abraham's part is not for the wicked, who are, who are unrepentantly wicked. Abraham does not function as a means of salvation to the unrepentant wicked. Uh, they're going to be destroyed in the end, as we're going to see. So, but what he does intercede for are the righteous. And so he becomes a priest in the world. And this is ultimately what his image, part of the job of the image, is that you are a priest in the world for the righteous, for those who will repent, um, so that God does not destroy them. 
But notice the question becomes, is God going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? This is wrong. Why would God, it may be God is not righteous. Maybe he's not good. Maybe he's not as good as, as we would be if we were God. Um, maybe there's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't care uh, of whether he actually kills the righteous along with the wicked. Maybe he's just, you know, he's apathetic toward it or something. But, but Abraham actually says, should not the judge of the earth do what is just? So he's calling God into question. God is not doing what's just. If you just destroy these cities and there's righteous men in them, then that's wrong. And so uh, Abraham pleads with God, if there are 50, would you save the city? And God says, yeah, I'll save the city over 50. Well, if there are 40, Abraham then says, well, how about 30? Well, how about 20? And each time God says, yes, I'll save the city. Yes, I'll save the city. And finally, Abraham gets down to 10 and he stops at 10. If you find 10 in the city, will you save the city? And God says, yes. And then God, of course, the, the two angels depart. Now, uh, I want you to notice that um, the reason why this exists, this whole episode, is because what we're going to see in the end is that even though Abraham is righteous and Lot is righteous, they're not more righteous than God. God will show himself to be the most righteous of all. And of course... That means the answer to the problem of evil is not by diminishing the goodness of God. So the two things people usually do, either God is not good because there's evil in the world, or he's not all powerful, or it's because of free will, are all false answers to the problem of evil. Genesis rejects all of these. God is almighty. God is all righteous. And man does not have free will in the sense that it, God can't somehow override it in some way. We're going to see this, of course, as we go through uh, the next episode. So now we get into the main narrative. This is all kind of a precursor to it in chapter 19. So let's go ahead and read chapter 19 now. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening while Lot was sitting in the city's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face toward the ground. He said, Here, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Stay the night and wash your feet. Then you can be on your way early in the morning. No, they replied, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he urged them persistently, so they turned aside with him and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them, including bread baked without yeast, and they ate. Before they could lie down to sleep, all the men, both young and old, from every part of the city of Sodom, surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, so we can take our carnal knowledge of them. Lot went outside to them, shutting the door behind him. He said, No, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have never been intimate with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do to them whatever you please. Only don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Out of our way, they cried. This man came to live here as a foreigner, and now he dares to judge us. We'll do more harm to you than to them. They kept pressing in on Lot until they were close enough to break down the door. 
So the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house as they shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house from the youngest to the oldest with blindness. The men outside wore themselves out trying to find the door. Then the two visitors said to Lot, who else do you have here? Do you have any sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or other relatives in the city? Get them out of this place because we are about to destroy it. The outcry against this place is so great before the Lord that he has sent us to destroy it. Then Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. He said, quick, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But the sons-in-law thought he was, he was ridiculing them. At dawn, the angels hurried Lot along saying, get going, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or else you will be destroyed when the city is judged. When Lot hesitated, the men grabbed his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters because the Lord had compassion on them. They led them away and placed them outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, run for your lives. Don't look back. You or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be destroyed. But Lot said to them, no, please, Lord, your servant has found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by sparing my life. But I am not able to escape to the mountains because this disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, this town over here is close enough to escape to, and it's just a little one. Let me go there. It's just a little place, isn't it? Then I'll survive. Very well, he replied. I will grant this request too, and will not overthrow the town you mentioned. Run there quickly, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. This incident explains why the town was called Zor. The sun had just risen over the land of Lot as Lot reached Zor. Then the Lord rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was sent down from the sky by the Lord. So he overthrew those cities and all that region, including all the inhabitants of the cities and the vegetation that grew from the ground. But Lot's wife looked back longingly and was turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked out toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of that region. And he did so, as he did so, he saw the smoke rising up from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the region, God honored Abraham's request. He removed Lot from the midst of the destruction when he destroyed the cities Lot had lived in. Lot went up from Zor with his two daughters and settled in the mountains because he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Later, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the country to sleep with us, the way everyone does. Come, let's make our father drunk with wine so we can go to bed with him and preserve our family line through our father. So that night they made their father drunk with wine, and the older daughter came in and went to bed with her father. But he was not aware of when she lay down with him and when she got up. So in the morning, the older daughter said to the younger, Since I went to bed with my father last night, let's make me him drunk again tonight. Then you go in and go to bed with him, so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they made their father drunk that night as well, 
and the younger one came and went to bed with him. But he was not aware of when she lay down and with him or when she got up. In this way, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also gave birth to a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of the Ammonites of today. Okay, so of course, again, Lot is paralleled to Abraham. He, he is taking care of the angels. And notice the angels come to investigate as God, this is part of showing that God is good. Uh, God investigates when he goes to the garden. Does he need to know information from Adam? No, he already knows that they sinned. But a good judge investigates, he asks questions, and then he brings judgment. Same thing with the Tower of Babel. God comes down to see what men are doing. He doesn't just arbitrarily throw out a judgment or something. He's a good God. And so here as well, he comes down and see. And notice, they're looking to provoke Lot into an admission that the city is wicked by saying, oh no, we're going to stay in the public square when Lot's saying, please come into my house. No, no, we'll stay in the public square. And then Lot's like, no, 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 don't do that. And then rise up early and leave. So Lot himself is admitting this city is so wicked. You cannot stay in the public square. You'll be in danger. And you'll be in danger if you wait too long in the morning. You need to go quick. So, of course, they come into Lot's house. Uh, this is a famous story. We all know it, of course. Um, and it says that everything, the entire city from one end to the other, from the very ends of the city, the young men to the old men. So it's everybody, everybody in the city, the text wants to emphasize, all the men of the city have come to the house to uh, try to pull the men out to have sex with them. Now, a lot of people will argue, well, no, no, they were just saying we want to know them. We, we want to get to know them. It's like, uh, no, the word yada here clearly does not mean get to know. And of course, uh, we see in Genesis, like Adam knew his wife, so he had sex with his wife. Um, just a couple verses later, we're going to see that, well, or, or a verse later, uh, Lot's going to say, um, I have two daughters who have not known a man. You can take them. And so Lot is actually offering them his own daughters. And, um, and you know, so the, the word know here clearly means these men, all the men of the city, from young to old, from the ends of the city, want to pull these men out and have sex with them. Um, so it shows that there is a there is a, a disordered sexuality. Of course, this feeds into the ethic of Genesis. The wicked are presented as those who engage in distorted sexuality, a non-procreative sexuality. And what's interesting is that Lot says to them, um, there, "There's I think an interesting play on words." He says, "Do not do what is raw. raw. Do not do raw. Do not do." chaos do not do evil do not do what's disordered i have two daughters do what is tove in your eyes that is ordered in your eyes with them um, and then of course the response of the men is that we're going to do more raw to you than we were going to do to the men when they talked to lot and so it's very i think it's a, a subtle way of saying look what the sexuality you're engaged in as bad as it is to have Lot offer his daughters, he's trying to, one, protect the men that he's brought into his household because he's required um, to protect these men, but also in the sense that 
the the men sleeping with the women would be more ordered than them sleeping with the men. That's even even more anti-creational, as bad as it is for Lot to give them his daughters, who frankly are engaged to other men. So this would be seen as wicked. It's not like anybody reads this and it's like, oh, it's okay for Lot to do this. Um, in terms of like, it's okay for these men to, to rape Lot's daughters. It's like his only option to do something more ordered than disordered. Um, but it would have been, you know, seen as, no, the, the women, the, these men should not rape these women when they're engaged. Two, rape is wrong anyway. Um, and so it would be absolutely wrong to do this. But, uh, but the idea is that it's more ordered than what they're doing. So it's just showing the absolute depravity and the fact that these men are not the images of God. They're not, they're not following God in any way. These men are wicked and they're ready to be basically destroyed. So, of course, then, the men pull Lot into the house. They strike the men with blindness. You get this kind of comic scene where the men are, like, feeling for the door and they can't find the opening anymore. And the angels tell Lot, you need to leave. You, you need to prepare, get the people that you are going to go with you and take them out of the city. Lot then goes to his sons-in-laws. They laugh at him. It says that he appears as one who's a jokester, one who jokes, one who's jesting. And so they don't believe him. But I want you to notice then, uh, the angels, ha he's, he's lingering, it, the text says. He's just staying there. He's, just, he's not going to go. He's not going to go. And so the angels press him to go, and he's still just not going to go. His family is going to stay there. And so here's where God interferes with his will. They grab his hand. They grab the hand of his wife, the, the hand of his two daughters, and they pull them out of the city. So the idea that, well, no, you know what? Love requires that God doesn't interfere with our free will. Uh, no, love requires that you go grab your kid's hand who's in the middle of the street and you pull them out of the street. Who in the world ever said love requires you don't interfere to, to not interfere with free will? That is absurd. You interfere with free will all the time with your children to save their lives. Love requires you interfere with someone's free will. And of course, we know ultimately God interferes in salvation for our sakes uh, by changing our will. He, that's, that's the most interference you can get, is that we willed one thing and God changes it so, us, so we will another to save our lives. So here you have an interference of Lot's free will, grabs his hand, grabs the hands of his family, and pulls them out of the city. That is absolutely an interference of free will. So is the answer to the problem that God exists and evil exists to say that, well, because there's free will? And the answer is no. That's not the answer. Do we have a will? Yeah, we choose constantly. Lot's choosing to stay. The angels chose, that is, God chose otherwise. And why did they choose otherwise? The text says, because Yahweh had compassion on him. So God having compassion on Lot caused God to instruct the angels to grab his hand and pull him out of damnation. So the answer is not, oh, man has free will and, and, and God would just never interfere with that. Nonsense. He absolutely would. So the answer is not, God just doesn't have the power to deal with this evil. 
The answer is not, well, God must not be all good because he doesn't really care about this evil. And the answer is not, well, man has free will and God would never interfere. That's, those three answers to the problem of evil are false by the book of Genesis. That's, Genesis rejects those. The Bible rejects that answer. You find someone who gives you that answer, the Bible rejects it. It's wrong. It may sound good to you. You may have a whole philosophy built on it, but it's false. It's not true. Um, that's not the answer we're given by the book of Genesis. So, uh, of course, uh, that happens, and then you have this interesting episode where Lot, they tell Lot to go to the mountains, and Lot's like, oh, I can't go to the mountains. Uh, I'll perish if I go to the mountains. Let me go to this, this small city, because it's just small. It's a little city, and you can just, it's a little town, and if God just spares that, I'll, I'll live there. And finally, the angels are like, okay, well, you can go there, and we won't destroy that city. Uh, but go, because we need to wait for you, because we can't do anything until you leave. So notice, God is not allowing the angels to destroy the city. Why? Because he's saving Lot and his family. Very important for what's going on. So the irony is then, of course, they get to the city, and his wife, who is seen as wicked by doing this, turns around, because the angels say, don't look behind you. She goes back and longs for the city, turns into a pillar of salt. So his wife is seen as wicked. Then he can't actually, Lot can't stay in the city because it's so wicked. He's afraid to live there. So who was right about the city? Well, God was, and he didn't listen. He thought he knew better. And where does he end up? In the mountains, where God told him to go originally. And so God knew better, Lot didn't. But there you go again, man thinking he knows better than God and he wants to be God himself. And he ends up creating more chaos that way and being wrong and whatnot. And so he ends up in a cave in the mountains. And while in the mountains, his daughters say, you know what, there's no more men. Uh, it's just us. It's just he and his daughters living in this cave in the mountain. And, uh, and there's no one to, <clears throat> to procreate with. And so they each make this statement that, um, or the, the older at least, is making the statement, let's preserve a seed through our father. So they get him drunk and each one sleeps with him. And she conceives a child through him. One conceives Moab. Uh, Moab means basically from the father, from the father. Um, and then uh, Ben-Ami, which means from or, or son of my people. That is probably son of my family, my own group or whatever, uh, who become the Ammonites. So the Moabites and the Ammonites are actually created in this way, who give Israel tons of grief in the future. Um, and so bad things are created through human reasoning once again because people think they know better. Um, but of course, notice then that that means this. The only righteous person in Sodom and Gomorrah and all those cities was Lot. His daughters are not righteous. His wife was not righteous. No one else is righteous. Sons-in-law weren't righteous. No one else is righteous. Just Lot. So uh, only Lot is righteous out of all these people. Um, I want you to notice that this whole narrative, you may not have picked this up before, mimics the flood narrative. There are numerous parallels to the flood narrative. And I want to read this from, uh, this is from Wenham's commentary, but uh, this is a good little summary. It's a little bit long. I'll try to, you know, but well, I, I think it's good for us to read. 
Similarities between the account of Sodom's destruction and the flood story have often been noted. Both stories are tales of universal destruction brought about by human wickedness, a destruction from which one righteous man and his family are saved by divine grace. Both stories are followed by the hero's intoxication with wine and the disgraceful actions of his children. And as already pointed out, the main story in each case is organized as an elaborate polystrophy. But besides these thematic parallels, there are also verbal similarities between the accounts. It begins with Abraham going halak with them, which evokes uh, 6.9, Noah walked halak with God. Like righteous Noah in 6.9 and 7.1, Abraham teaches his family to do righteousness, 18.19. And he bases his whole argument for the sparing of Sodom on the presence of the righteousness or the righteous people in the city. Though Lot is never described as righteous, the fact that he is brought out suggests uh, that he is regarded as relatively righteous, at least. The divine self-reflection in 18, 17 through 21 is akin to that in 6, 5 through 8. The depravity of man in general and the righteousness of one man in particular constituting their common theme. In both stories, ruin, shechat, is one of the key verbs to describe destruction. 613, 17, 911, 15, 1828, 31, 32, 1913, 14, and 29. The angel's action in putting out their hand and bringing Lot into the house resembles Noah's similar action when he put out his hand and brought the dove into the safety of the ark. Now, again, this is talking about the words that are used. As in the flood, where God first warns Noah of the need to build and enter the ark before commanding him to enter, so here the angels warn Lot in the evening and then make him leave the next morning. The list of escapers, Lot, his wife, his two daughters, recalls that of Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. In pleading with angels to allow him to enter Zoar, Lot speaks of finding favor in their eyes, admittedly a common idiom but used in a special sense of Noah in 6.8, so that his life will be saved. So if you remember, uh, he, he was saved because God finds, he finds favor in God's eyes. One of the key verbs in the flood story, and later used by the daughters in the expression to produce descendants. In both accounts, the Lord makes it rain, uh, using the Hebrew word matar. Finally, and of course, so it's rain, real rain, raining water, and then rain here, raining fire and brimstone. Finally, and it's both the instrument, of course, of uh, the judgment. Finally, and most clearly, God remembered Abraham exactly recalls God remembered Noah, 1929 and 8.1. By themselves, some of the resemblances between the two stories might be coincidental, but their number suggests that the parallels between the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are being deliberately exploited by the author of Genesis, and the observation must inform both the interpretation of the narrative and the discussion of its unity. Now, um, in other words, the author is purposely describing the destruction of the city in the same way that he described the flood and paralleling those things. As we just said, uh, the biggest parallel, I think, is right after this destruction of the wicked, showing that destruction of wicked does not get rid of evil, is that uh, Lot gets drunk, just like Noah got drunk. Uh, now his, you know, his daughters kind of manipulate him to become drunk, but either way, uh, he gets drunk. Again, that's not seen as unrighteous in the book of Genesis, although it's seen as something that really people should think about not doing because it leads to immorality leads extensively to immorality 
And, uh, and then you have his daughters do a lot what Ham did. That is, they do something incestuous. Ham looks upon Noah in his nakedness, and so there's something incestuous there. The daughters sleep with Lot, and so there's something incestuous there. And so this brings about a horrible, immoral, uh, incestuous thing. And so drunkenness is seen in that light. But both of them do this afterward showing that the answer, of course, is not to just wipe out the wicked and somehow you get rid of evil. Evil still rears its ugly head either way. Now, here is the point of this. The daughters are evil. The wife was evil. So you have this parallel between the flood narrative and here. But here you had God in the flood save an entire family. God here was saving the entire family. And yet you notice that it's only actually the one man who's righteous here. At least you had, you know, um, you had two of Noah's boys that were righteous. You know, they walked backward and they covered him up or whatever. But neither Lot's daughters nor his wife are righteous. And yet God still saved the one man. Remember what Abraham argued for. He argued for 10. Save the whole city. In other words, God, don't judge the wicked. Let evil persist for the sake of the 10 righteous. God actually judges the wicked, but he is not willing to, to judge even one righteous man with the wicked. He saves one and judges the wicked, showing that he is more just than the just people on the earth, Abraham and Lot. Lot wasn't going to save himself at all. He was going to stay in the city and, and perish. Abraham was just going to save 10, but then also allow the wicked to persist. God wasn't going to do either one, showing that this is what God is ultimately going to do. He is not going to allow any of the wicked to stand. This is something repeated over and over. God will not let the guilty go. It's unrighteous. So he is going to bring judgment on the guilty. But he is going to spare the righteous. He's not going to just sweep them away along with the rest. And he'll go against their will to spare them because he has compassion on those and their children who love him to the third and fourth generation, right? To, or you know, to thousands who love him. Third and fourth generation is, is talking about the wicked. So I want you to notice this then, that the answer is not, well, God is not good. He is not as righteous as we would be. That, that's why evil persists in the world. No, God is better than you. He's better than anyone. The most righteous person that you think has ever lived, God is better than that person. He is more righteous. And so the answer is not, if God exists, why does evil exist? Well, it must be because God is not as powerful. It must be because God is not righteous. He doesn't care. Or it must be that God doesn't want to interfere with free will. None of those are accurate. Instead, what has been the consistent answer for the book of Genesis? Chaos exists in the world. Evil still persists because God uses both disorder and order to create, to bring about order. Not just order, because God is the knower of good and evil. He is the true master of good and evil. He can bring about order through it. Humans cannot. That was the failure to understand that in the garden. That, yeah, we'll just use our sexuality and we'll, we'll work it out. I mean, we, we know how to use it right. I mean, we, we know what's best. 
We don't need to use it in a procreative way. We're fine. Uh, we, we know how to judge our lives and whether we should have children and all that. I mean, we, we know that best. And the answer is no, you don't. You don't know best. God knows best. And the reason why evil persists in the world is not because God is bad. And it's not because God can't get rid of it right now if he wanted to. And it's not because he doesn't want to interfere with free will. It's because God has decided in his eternal plan to use, knowing, knowing that this is going to happen, knowing all of this was going to occur, to use this to bring about creation. Why? Because it displays his glory, displays who he is, so that you may know God in a way that you would not know him. If you did not know his justice upon evil and his compassion upon those who call out for him. And who was going to call out for him if there was no evil in the world? How would you know suffering? How would you know what God overcame and the greatness of evil and the greatness of darkness? If, if you had not, uh, if God, it, darkness didn't exist. If the evil had not existed. God would not have been glorified. You would not have known God. And would you really be saved? Could anyone really be saved if God was not known? Since he's the life, uh, he's the life source. He's the source of all life and, uh, and, uh, and all eternal life. What does John say? This is eternal life, to know the only true God, to, own, to know God and Jesus Christ to me is sent, to know him. But you wouldn't know him if evil did not exist in the world. This is about not just the creation of like the physical planet. This is about our creation. Evil exists for us. God already knows himself. It doesn't, it's not existing for him. It exists for us so that we might know and understand God and thereby have eternal life. And so this is for his people. This is for our creation. That's why evil exists in the world. It has nothing to do with the nature of God as being lesser in any way, lesser in terms of goodness, lesser in terms of of uh, what he can do uh, in terms of his abilities or lesser in terms of what he can do because of our free will. Notice how men, they want to make God lesser in order to answer the question. That's, that's typically how we deal with it. But God isn't lesser at all. In Genesis, he's everything. And the answer is because he's more righteous than we are, he's going to actually allow us to suffer through this because it's our creation because he's good, because his end goal is good, the salvation of many lives, which is going to be the last statement of the book. So that is the point of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is the point of chapter 18 and 19. And it exists within the text of 12 through 25, because that's where we get that, the rest of that message, right? That even though all of this other chaos exists in the world, God is going to bring about his promises through it. His promises to Abraham, which are ultimately the promises to mankind, that I'm going to create this world, I'm going to fill it up through you, my images, with my covenant people, and I'm going to rid it of chaos. I am going to order this place. And you're going to know me that way, and I will know you. You will be my people. I will be your God and I will bring about this good thing in the end. That's the answer to the problem of evil that Genesis gives us. Evil exists in the world because God wants it to. 
um, because it's a part of his goodness toward us. As much as we don't feel it in the moment that that's true, we're not God and we don't know. We can't see. And so we merely need to trust in him as Abraham finally fears God and trusts in him with Isaac, giving God everything, willing to say, okay, well, take, you can take all from me then, God, because I know that you are good, that nothing is too powerful for you, that you will bring about your promises, and that even my stubborn, ridiculous nonsense that I do will not interfere with your plan to bring about your promises and your goodness. And we glorify God in that. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for these chapters. Uh, They reveal how great you truly are and how dumb we are in thinking that we know better and that we're better than you. We think that we're better than you in terms of figuring out what we should do in life. We think we're better than you in figuring out like, yeah, you, you know what? I know God wanted me to do this, but, but you know, I've got to, I don't have, you know, the best job right now and we don't have the finances and well, you know, we really wanted to go on a lot of vacations and all this other nonsense. We think we know better. And yet you prove yourself to know better time and again. We don't know better than you. We're not more powerful than you are. And we're not better in terms of our morality than you are. It's amazing how our arrogance and our narcissism, especially in our culture, how much it has increased alongside the claims that you are not moral, alongside the claims that you are not good. You didn't have these as much in history. They were here and there, uh, usually in, in extremely arrogant men. Now the whole culture is arrogant. Now we all think we're better. We're morally better. And yet we are a bunch of depraved human beings. Look at our lives. Look at how we destroy ourselves and other people. And yet we have the audacity to claim that we are better than you. No, we have only the, the, uh, the goal of our own fulfillment and pleasure in what we do. We are wicked people. Yet you have as your goal... And in, in as hard as it is to get this chemotherapy of evil in the world and suffering and pain and chaos, you have it as your goal, good, and the salvation of many people. And so we will praise your name, not our, our own. We are in the wrong. You are in the right. We don't get it. You do. Father, let us finally just release this control to you understanding that you are God and there is no other, and that includes us. We praise your name today. We glorify you as the perfect one who judges the wicked and saves the righteous perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen.